Welcome and thank you so much for tuning in with Talking Human Rights. My name is Leens van Kessel and I'll be your host today. I have an LLM in transnational law and I'm currently pursuing a master's in legal research. On Talking Human Rights, I'll talk to all kinds of academics who are working on some of the most important topics in this field today. The idea is to make their knowledge and insights accessible so that we're all a bit more informed and inspired as we're talking human rights to each other in the future. I'm incredibly excited to get started and hope you'll enjoy this first episode with someone who's an absolute force in human rights research. And before we introduce you, I want to start with a general question. Why do human rights matter to you and how did you personally become interested in human rights? Wow, that's a fascinating question to start with. Um, I, well, interestingly, I'm, I'm, I'm mainly interested in, in human rights or in fundamental rights because because of their very fundamental nature, I guess. I mean, it's, um, it, well, our, our system of law is incredibly complex and, and some things, some rights, I mean, a lot of people claim that are not that important and then you get a lot of legal talk. But fundamental rights really do matter to, to everyone. I mean, and I think we, we learned that very clearly, for instance, during the corona crisis, when suddenly everyone realized that they had fundamental rights and that they could be uh, violated. Um, but I think, yeah, I actually in my first week of studying law, I got acquainted with um, the notion of fundamental rights. And then I thought, wow, this is this is really interesting. Um, <laughs> I, I started studying law because of the reason that many people start studying law, because you have to do something. But then I, I became aware and uh, of, of the importance of this. And I thought, wow, this is this is a fascinating topic to work on. <laughs> I agree. That's a wonderful answer. So can you introduce yourself for the listeners today, Annika? Yeah, well, um, I'm Professor of Fundamental Rights Law um, at Utrecht University. Um, and I've been working in uh, the field of fundamental rights for about 25 years now. Um, so I've, I've studied law in Maastricht and uh, then moved to Leiden University, then to Nijmegen. And, and now I've just continued uh, the research career actually at Utrecht University, which is a fantastic place to, to work. Um, and on the side, I do many other things because I think it's important to not only do research, but also um, try to well convey your knowledge to other people and to advise and to share um, insights with uh, with others. So I'm also uh, working for the for the Venice Commission um, on Rule of Law. Um, I'm working for the Fundamental Rights Agency of the European Union. Um, I'm a, a deputy judge, so I do, I do plenty of things, um, but they're all all always related to fundamental rights. <laughs> That's so so much you are doing and it sounds like you're a busy bee definitely. You're also humble because I didn't. You didn't say your name. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you mentioned that. Yeah. <laughs> I said your first name. This is Janneke Gerards, and um, yeah, as I said before, she's in force. And if you study human rights in the Netherlands, you'll definitely hear her name or have heard her name by now. So thank you so much for coming, and in terms of sharing your knowledge as well, I think this will be a good platform. I guess I hope. Um, so we know each other because you are the pr program leader for the Legal Research Masters at Utrecht University, and today we are talking talking human rights and technology. So how did you come to care about the topic of technology specifically and why do you think it's important? Well, actually, I, I, well, that starts quite a bit back um, in a way um, because in, I think, 20. 
2004, I started doing research on uh, genetic um, uh, discrimination and genetic privacy. And that, at that time, that was a really new technology so that we could find out about, well, people having certain genetic predispositions to develop diseases or to uh, become disabled at a certain age. And at that time, um, I got a request to do some research um, into how that could be regulated better because we could see that insurance companies and employers were actually, well, disadvantaging people with so bad genetic um, uh, predispositions. Um, so that got me really interested in the influence of, well, new technological findings that are really important for humankind as such, um, yeah. but also might be have certain risks that we are not really aware of. So, and well, then about 15 years on, um, I got another request by the Ministry of the Interior and they were actually doing some kind of inventory of the extent to which algorithms could affect fundamental rights. And they asked me whether I could help. And I must say that I didn't know too much about AI and algorithms at that time. Uh, but I thought, well, yes, this is one other of these topics of, a, well, extremely important kind of te technological development, but that also can really affect fundamental rights. So, yeah, I said yes to that um, uh, commission's research. And, and from there, um, I've just been, well, um, learning a lot about um, how all these technologies work and getting some insights in, in how they affect fundamental rights, um, uh, well, in the, in the same kind of process. That's really interesting. So you really came, of course, from this fundamental rights perspective. Do, would you say you've learned a lot about how the technology itself works by now? You're always learning, of course, um, also in terms of technology, because the technology keeps developing all the time as well. I mean, when I started, well, um, algorithms were still a thing, of course, but now we've progressed to um, generative um, AI with the ChatGPT and all the large language models. We've really developed in, in terms of deep fake and I continue to, um, well, now a little bit more just uh, learning by doing and learning by, by reading um, what these new, newest forms of technology, how they work and how they can affect fundamental rights. Yeah, I see. I see. That's very interesting. And so you just mentioned some examples such as uh, algorithms and AI and deepfakes. Can you perhaps zoom in on uh, any of these examples and explain how they are related to human rights and fundamental rights? Um, well, I think most people will know the example of, um, well, the big platforms such as um, um, Instagram and, and Snapchat and, um, and TikTok, who um, do a lot in terms of, um, well, prioritizing the messages you get to see. I mean, if you like a certain message, you will probably like that other message as well. And of course, that's fantastic. Also, from a fundamental rights perspective, because you get to well, you receive a lot of information. You can form your own opinion. Uh, you're autonomous in a certain way, but it also very seriously influences you. Um, so it may also more or less determine the kind of choices that you make, the kind of things that you are do, you think you are interested in. Um, and all these um, large platforms, they are also uh, moderating information all the time. So they might uh, remove certain information that they think is not good for you, or they might prioritize certain information, which means that in a way they also, I mean, on the one hand, they, they 
um, promote and, and, and increase your um, access to information. On the other hand, um, they reduce uh, that access to information. So they also affect uh, freedom of expression, um, your right to information. And that is what an algorithm does. It really determines how you think about the world. And that's a rather fundamental kind of um, issue. And as well, there's many more algorithms ranging from, um, did, you, did you ever pay thought to the Internet of Things? Um, so we're now close to, to the Christmas holidays. A lot of people are buying presents for their right. children and they, they're buying this talking doll. And well, their children are going to talk to the doll and the doll will talk back. Um, but there's a lot behind that. I mean, there's a lot of uh, data being collected to enable such a, a doll to talk back. There's a lot of your information that is actually um, shared. Um, and also, uh, well, again, the doll might determine how your uh, child is going to, to think about the world. So if they're, well, so it's sort of programmed in biases and stereotypes there about, for instance, women's and men's roles, then that might, um, at a very young age, already influence your child. So that's a lot of hidden kind of influences on our fundamental rights, but they are still there. Right. And these, but there's been a lot of talk about, about technology and about biases and about algorithms. Can you explain this a little bit more, how these biases in the algorithm can play a role? Yeah, that's a little bit more complicated in a way. I mean... So they're, they're relatively easy, straightforward, rule-based algorithms, but we also have these um, so-called machine learning or self-learning, deep learning kinds of algorithms. And um, they are basically some kind of calculation models that are somehow programmed into a system and then combined with a lot of uh, statistical models that can make predictions about how patterns that they spot more or less, that they find in, in well, enormous amounts of data and they can uh, based on those patterns make prediction about what will happen in the future so and you can train these models uh, more or less but you will have to do that based on data so if, if you think for instance of um, say you're uh, you want to have um, a nice movie to watch and and you will look on Netflix then Netflix will say well if you like this kind of movie you will probably also like this movie um, so how can it arrive at that prediction, more or less? Well, it's looking at uh, far back at what other people and what you have watched yourself um, and um, uh, based on the kind of statistical analysis of all those patterns that it can see in those past data, it will make a prediction of what you will probably like uh, for the future. The thing is that all these data about the past, um, they are human data. And human beings are inherently biased. I mean, all of us are, have all kinds of biases and stereotypes. Biases are reflected in, um, well, our likings, our preferences. And if that is the data that is being collected and being analyzed and being um, uh, used as a basis for patterns and being used as a basis for making predictions for the future, then those past biases um, that are well, more or less bred into uh, the algorithm, will perpetuate uh, those biases and stereotypes. So if you have biased inputs, so input data, and that's almost always the case if you don't really very carefully um, compensate for that, you will reproduce uh, those biases. Um, and for the future, that can be really a problem. And these, this input bias, does that have to do with the people creating the algorithm then? 
partly so, yeah. I think there's this, um, not only, there's this famous example of um, Amazon.com uh, and they wanted to have a new algorithm to select people for promotion in their jobs. And well, th that looked very good and it was very nicely programmed, very neutral in a way. But then um, at a certain point, it turned out that only uh, male uh, employees were being promoted to higher functions. So they started to figure out how that came about. And then apparently the, the algorithm had trained itself to, to spot um, success factors for people being promoted into higher functions. And somehow the past data were mainly data about, well, there were always men promoted to higher functions. There were also some factors of, well, being very assertive and typically male kind of um, notions. And those were just repeated by the algorithm. So in a way you can, by programming and training an algorithm carefully, you can remove certain of those biases. So to that extent, it's due to the programming, but it's also inherently due to the kind of data that you feed into an algorithm. So there's different stages in the use of an algorithm that you will have to look very carefully what, what kind of steps are being taken. And why does it matter that um, there are these biases? Who does that sort of adversely affect? Well, that's, um, in practice, that mainly seems to appears to um, affect people who already find themselves in a disadvantaged position. Um, so, for instance, women often are indirectly discriminated by these algorithms. Um, also, um, um, ethnic minorities or low socioeconomic status groups. So somehow we hold, for, we have held for ages some kind of, well, all these inherent biases in our thinking and they are reflected in, in past decisions that we have made and the past choices that we have made. And um, yeah, that, that negatively affects um, those very same groups. So if we see institutionalized patterns of discrimination in our societies, you can almost be sure that those will be repeated and perhaps even reinforced in algorithmic uh, decision making. That's beautifully said, and I think it really uh, gets to the problem of, of these new technologies and what they mean for human rights and what they mean for discrimination. Um, would you say there are new rights that are related to these technological advancements? So new human rights or new ways in which people's rights are being breached? I always find that very difficult because many of the the fundamental rights that we have recognized for a very long time are very broad in scope. Uh, so for instance, our right to uh, private life or um, our right to autonomy or our right to information, those have been recognized already um, in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and in plenty of national constitutions and in many international treaties. Um, and in a way you can easily um, read um, all these new elements into those rights. So I think they are relatively safely covered. There are also some scholars who say, well, we, we need more specific uh, protection um, of these rights. And for instance, there's now also a new stream um, uh, about neurotechnology. So for instance, algorithms that really influence your thinking or your brain, uh, how your brain functions more or less. So uh, that can be very advantageous, for instance, for, for Parkinson's patients. Uh, but if we have some kind of commercial uh, application that also uh, says that it will protect us against depression be by reprogramming our, our brains, then that also might be very risky. And that are people who say, well, we need a right to mental integrity specifically for that. 
Um, or there are also certain people who say, well, we need a right to remain free from non-human beings influencing our decision making. So, yeah, those you could recognize those rights. Um, I'm not entirely sure whether th that would bring us that much. Uh, we can, as mentioned, easily, I think, use the existing and well-recognized fundamental rights to, to combat this. I think what we need more is more concrete regulation, more concrete legislation, for instance, to say what kind of, um, well, technologies um, should not uh, simply be accepted or should have first some kind of certification process or should have a kind of special manual to to go with them before they're actually being used because then at a more concrete level you are more or less solving the problem and thereby also protecting these fundamental rights right that's very interesting and maybe we can backtrack slightly because we talked as well about the role of the designers of algorithms and those creating these algorithms we're obviously in the in the area of law the field of human rights and fundamental rights Where do you think there is a main role for the designers and the creators of these technologies? And where do you think the role of the law comes in in that sense? Well, the, there's actually some kind of a design cycle involved here. So there's there's plenty of people involved in, in uh, making use of an algorithm. So um, mainly in the end, it's going to be the, the body or the company who's going to use the algorithm to support decision making or to make decisions. And they will either buy an existing algorithm and reprogram it or further develop it, or they will commission a kind of programming body to, to design an algorithm for that. And in order to do that, this programming agency will have to, of course, build the, the, um, the algorithm, but also will have to find a lot of data to train the algorithm. And these data are also often the problem. And some, some large data sets are for sale, more or less, but sometimes they are not really reliable. So there's a lot of different people um, involved in a lot of different stages of this decision-making process. And one of the difficulties in, in protecting fundamental rights is that actually at all these different stages, people involved should be aware of the risks um, of fundamental rights that are involved in their specific stage of decision-making. So, for instance, those bringing together data sets should be very much involved in, in making sure that that's high quality data, that's reliable, that uh, doesn't have um, a lot of biases in them. The programmers should make sure that they do not program in any kind of additional biases and that they clean the data and make sure that the algorithm is, is functioning correctly. And in the end, of course, the, the body or the company that's going to use the algorithm should make sure that well, all the previous steps are correctly used. So from a fundamental rights protection perspective, I think that the main angle perhaps should be the user um, of the algorithm. So the company or the public authority that is going to, um, well, use this algorithm to support their decisions because they have more or less control over the previous steps. And they should be able to check whether also in the The, the previous stages, fundamental rights have sufficiently complained with. That's a good approach. So you're putting a lot of the responsibility towards the end of the process. What is the impact specifically of the fact that there are so many um, different actors involved in a process like this? Because I can imagine that 
someone who is creating an algorithm but doesn't know exactly what it's going to be used for, this practice sort of carries extra risks for, for the human rights, right? Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, if you're just creating some kind of a basic algorithm, you have no idea what's going to happen with it. So you must comply with some basic, um, um, well, requirements more or less, but it's difficult to, to know what to, to do or not to do. So that's indeed why I would like to put the responsibility mainly with the user because they know that. And they also have some kind of the, the tools to, to check whether the, the steps in the process have been correct. I mean, you can, um, if you buy an algorithm um, or if you combine an algorithm with another algorithm, you know what you're doing. You can uh, buy algorithms in different places. I mean, you do not necessarily perhaps have to go to um, a, Chine a Chinese producer of, of algorithms. You also can go to um, a European one, which has been certified, for instance, for using good data. So um, in a way, that responsibility can be more easily targeted if it's in, in one body, uh, because the difficulty that we see is that people who are actually affected in the end by an algorithm, for instance, because they are discriminated against, um, they have to know where to find some kind of legal protection against that. And if you don't know who to address, who to bring a complaint against, should that be any of the uh, of the, the, the various parties involved, that's going to be very difficult. Um, so it's it's for law generally, it's it's rather crucial to have at least a very clear um, agent that can be held responsible for certain actions. Right, that makes total sense. There needs to be a point of contact for those who are most affected by this problem. Um, so there are different actors in the process of creating an algorithm. How come human rights are not protected in that chain currently enough? So is that because of, for let's say, for uh, financial reasons? Or how come we haven't sort of from the start seen this um, risk? It's a good question. I think there's many elements involved in this. Um, partly it might be a lack of awareness. Um, so, well, as lawyers or people interested in, in, in law, we, I think, often think of fundamental rights issues. But if you are a programmer or an ICT specialist um, or just someone who wants something done, you might not have, well, on the top of your, your mind, <laughs> this idea of uh, fundamental rights protection. So I think awareness really is an important um, explanation for that. Indeed, financial considerations also might play a role there. And what is difficult about fundamental rights is that often fundamental rights conflict with each other or with other public values. Um, so if, well, say protection of, um, of data or of private life would conflict with say freedom of expression, uh, but also with uh, public safety, uh, for instance, in the use of, of algorithms for fraud detection or for calculating a risk of uh, reoffending, then, uh, well, the, the persons in charge might somehow make choices there, make balancing of, um, so how, well, how useful do we think this algorithm is going to be? Um, how, uh, how strongly can it predict that someone is going to commit fraud? And what are the opposing fundamental rights interests there? And sometimes, indeed, well, the, uh, what they regard as the public interests will prevail uh, to the expense of uh, fundamental rights. And of course, that is 
kind of decisions that public authorities um, often make. I mean, whether or not you use um, an algorithm or some kind of other policy tool, that is the kind of um, uh, balancing exercise that goes on there. But because of the, the, the inherent risks of um, algorithms, you should well, pay really good care to um, how that decision-making process occurs. So partly it's awareness and, and partly I think it's being uh, sufficiently knowledgeable about how algorithms work and how also normal uh, human decision-making processes work and how you can ensure that fundamental rights could be integrated into those decision-making processes. Right. And on that first point of the awareness, I'm thinking now as well that it might be worth mentioning here that, of course, those who are affected by these discriminations um, through biases in algorithms might not always know that they are affected, right? How does this um, play a role and how is this kind of developed that there is more of a consciousness of um, the biases that are happening? Yeah, that's true. I think, well, for everyone, it would be important to to know a bit more about what well, I mean, we're using all these fantastic technologies every day, and they're extremely useful to us, but we, we hardly see the risks. And, and sometimes you just accept them. I mean, I, I think there are not many people who will refuse cookies all the time, for instance. <laughs> I mean, that that's just a burden. That's a, just a bother. You don't want to do that. And yeah, somehow I think it's difficult to make uh, people aware of that and also make them, well, see the consequences of um, accepting all those cookies and, and, well, buying those talking dolls. So, yeah, it's, it, it's going to be very hard. So I don't really think we can make the consumers entirely responsible for the kind of choices they make. Um, so the to my mind, but that's that's more of an opinion than than something that is <laughs> has appeared from scholarship. I would think that responsibility really has been with the the producers and the decision makers and the companies who are selling these project uh, products and who are further developing them. They should be aware of these fundamental rights issues and should. And I mean, regulation will be necessary to bring them to actually make good choices in that respect. Right and. So we're with regulations, we're a little bit back on the law again. Um, what is the role of the law in this regard and how, wh what are some of the big challenges w with regards to technology and, and the quick developments we're seeing? Well, the law can do a lot in a way. Um, the law is always lagging behind a little bit. That's that's a bit of a problem. So first, something has to has to occur and has to develop, and only then the law will intervene and say, "Well, we're going to prohibit this now, or we're going to regulate that now." So we're always a little bit late in the day. That's also true for these technologies, but it doesn't mean that we can't do anything. So, for instance, on the EU level, um, there is now um, a proposal made for an AI Act. Uh, which is going to regulate, is going to prohibit certain really problematic forms of AI. Think of, um, well, serious deep fakes uh, that could influence our thinking too much. Um, that's going to be simply prohibited. Also, for other forms of um, algorithms that still could have an impact on us, they are, um, well, setting specific conditions, specific requirements on specific checks to make sure that um, the AI that is being used in Europe is actually um, good quality AI and as is respecting these fundamental rights. So in a way, I think those are really good efforts uh, that are actually made. Of course, the problem is that 
law is often bound to certain what we call jurisdictions. So, uh, for instance, we have we have Dutch law, of course, we have German law, we have French law, we have Greek law, and they can regulate what is happening within their own territory. The European Union is at a little bit of this higher level. Uh, but of course, algorithms work on this global level, more or less. So there's trade in algorithms all over the world. And it's going to be, well, we need this kind of transnational um, legislation and approach as well, so that we also know that if you purchase um, an algorithm in the United States or in, in South Africa, and that you are also sure that that complies with uh, the standards that we think are important in, in, in Europe. So I think that's, well, there's still need of regulation there, but that's um, certain to, uh, to come at a certain point. Right, this, this global level and this transnational, sort of this required transnational commitment, I would say, to combating these types of biases is really important. And there's this example of European legislation. Is there more global commitment to fighting this, this problem? Yeah, there absolutely is. So there are quite some activities, for instance, in UNESCO. So that's the UN organization which deals with, for instance, science and culture, but also uh, with um, using algorithms. They have some, um, well, soft law regulations. And there's a lot, well, it's, it's a lot of soft law, so it's not really binding. Uh, but it's at least giving indications um, to worldwide actors and there's commitment also of the governments of the states that are involved in that kind of project uh, that more or less yeah, give guidance in developing um, these new algorithms. That's really good. And with this look to the future sort of, so in, in future there will have to be more regulations that are responding to the new types of technology we're seeing. Is it also possible at some basic level to develop that legislation now so that we can prevent the negative effects of different types of technologies that might develop in the future? Yeah, that's 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 difficult for law. I mean, we can't um, already regulate what is still not existing. Of course, you can try to extrapolate a little bit from what we're currently having. And we need to rethink the way we're regulating to, to a bit of an extent. So... What we, so one of the, the disadvantages of fundamental rights law, as it presently is, is that it's, it's very much based on individuals being harmed in their exercise of fundamental rights and then being able to go to a court of law and, and find redress there. But that's, that's not working that much anymore because a lot of people don't know that they are being affected in their fundamental rights. And probably with future technology, that's the same thing. So in a way, you want that um, fundamental rights law shifts its attention from ex post kind of uh, protection. So you are harmed and then you're going to find some kind of support to some kind of ex ante approach. So already developing a new technology or already deciding on the use of a new technology you will have to uh, secure awareness of fundamental rights. And that could also work for, for new technologies. So, for instance, we are working a lot in uh, the Netherlands, but also in Europe, about um, doing impact assessments. Um, so if, as a public authority or an agency, you would like to, to make use of um, a certain new technology as a policy tool, 
uh, you will have to run through a lot of questions uh, that all are based on, well, the quality of your data, the quality of uh, your programming. Um, why do you actually want to use this? Why don't you consider any other um, uh, policy tools? What kind of fundamental rights could be affected? Uh, will this be ineffective? Well, there's a lot of different questions that you would like to ask. If you do that already in the decision-making process, you could safeguard fundamental rights before actually a new product or a new tool is being used. And I think that is um, extremely important and that really is a well a future development that uh, fundamental rights law is taking. So this, this move from, from, well, being rather late, um, just repairing things that have already happened to trying to prevent fundamental rights violations from happening. That's wonderful and makes me more optimistic towards future developments might adversely affect some groups um, in our society. So that's that's a good thought. I guess also main advantages of looking at this with human rights and fundamental rights in our minds is that we know which rights are at stake already and the ways in which they might be affected might differ, but it does help for these types of impact assessments that we, we know what we need to protect, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for talking with me about this on this beautiful morning. Uh, I have a final question for you, which I would like to round off the episode with that. And it is, who is someone you look up to in the field of human rights? And why do you look up to this person? Wow. Um, I find that a really difficult question. I mean, <laughs> the, the thing is, there's so many people who I find inspiring and who have taught me different bits and pieces. Um, so one of my my true, um, well, someone I, I've already uh, always admired, I think might not be known to that many people um, of, of younger generations, but it's <laughs> Tim Koopmans. Okay. Um, he's, he used to be, a, well, a generalistic lawyer, also a fundamental rights lawyer. I think he uh, came up with an idea of uh, that there should be a right to identity, personal identity, which I, I loved. And he came up with that idea already in 1990. So um, that's wow. uh, far ahead of his, uh, of his time but he also was a wonderful constitutionalist and well he's he's learned me so much through his through his publications i'm have I've always uh, thought well I, I would like to be like him <laughs> that's wonderful thank you and it's uh, someone for all of us to google after this episode um thank you so much for for coming to the studio today Annika, and enlightening us about issues related to human rights and technology it's been incredibly interesting and i'm sure our listeners agree and um, yeah, if you enjoyed listening to this episode, please follow our social media and share it with your colleagues, your friends, your students or whoever you are in contact with. And I hope this episode has inspired you in talking human rights. Mm -hmm.